Hi, welcome back to Y'all Out. I'm your host, Grace Gibson, and on today's episode, I get to have a conversation with someone I have adored and admired for a very long time. Chef Adam Richardson is the founding and current chef de cuisine at Michelin star restaurant Don Angie, located in the West Village of Manhattan, New York. Adam has a vibrant and winding journey that brings him to where we meet him today. He has recipes published in multiple cookbooks, including On the Line, a cookbook featuring recipes written by America's most prominent up-and-coming chefs. He is a member of the Gay Men's Chorus and has an extensive background in opera and music. Adam opens up today about the trauma of being disowned by his parents when he came out to them as gay at 14 years old and the compound trauma of his father's death his senior year of high school. He shares the pain and heartache of rejection and the hope and resilience of his character. And this man has the best laugh. So without further ado, I give you Chef Adam Richardson. Hello, my name is Adam Richardson. My pronouns <laughs> are he, him. I, <laughs> I, am a, I am a flaming homosexual, <laughs> cisgendered male, and I am a chef in New York City living in Astoria, Queens. How's that? Dang. <laughs> that's a little asmr as well for sure yeah so beautiful thank you it's truly my pleasure (laughs) totally sets the tone (laughs) (laughs) love the costumes all right oh thank you are those all hugh stone or are they just a collection no these these are all all hugh stone costumes i love it Thank you. The lips mm-hmm. are from when I did Rocky Horror. When few- did you do that? I just did it a few weeks ago. We did like one of the like screening the film and then like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On stage and lip syncing kind of, you know? Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And like with the call outs and stuff, they asked me to do the lips. I was also riff raff, which was so fun. Hilarious. But uh, they asked me to do the lips for the opening and I was like, okay. <laughs> In my mind, sure. I was like, I make like a lips costume. Not I had no idea you could sew. Or, I didn't like, do any of this stuff. So I, I decided like the first time I performed drag was um for uh Lambda fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and it was like one of those things where it's like a competition, but like m- like the heaviest weighted component was like how much money you raised so it wasn't really like okay yeah amateur like just kind of like for fun performances but um I was really excited about it and I like obviously tried my best because I imagine you're like me where it's like there's no other way (laughs) than to do my best Yeah, it's like well if I'm gonna either go zero or a hundred so like there's no in between no in between so I you know, tried my best and I had a blast. And then I was like, how do I do this? All the time? All the time. I'm like, this is so much fun. But I didn't know how to get connected with the like local drag community, especially since I was already sober 
you know, I yeah. didn't like hang out at Pearl Bar or any other like drag shows much. Pearl Bar has a weekly like Kings show on Wednesdays. Nice. And so I started going to that sometimes and then I followed them on Instagram and then they posted about a drag king boot camp. Love it. <laughs> so it was like a weekly class that was taught by this guy, Ian Cider Blake, who's like kind of one of the uh, like sort of like trailblazer for like drag kings in Houston. Awesome. And so it was a different topic every week. So we got to the week where we were talking about like costumes and like crafting. And I, I just had never thought about that as a component of drag. Yeah. And so I was like, well, shit, I can't do that. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't have time and I don't know how I've like never sewn anything before in my life. And so I just kind of like started trying for like my first performance that I had. And then I was like, wait, this is really fun <laughs> and like super rewarding because you like make something and then you're like, I'm really holding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how that is, I imagine. And the good thing about making costumes is that the stakes are lower, you know, especially making costumes for myself. You know, it's not like I'm like, oh, I have to like get like the lining on this jacket. Like the lining for this is like really cool because it's all this like blue sequin lining, but it's hot glued. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like in like most of the jacket part, like this is sewn, but like a lot of it is, you know, and it's just like like well, I, I can made imagine like you choose your difficulty level, right? Yeah. So it's either like we're gonna I'm gonna blow out like four hot glue sticks, or it's gonna be, you know, let me try my best to sew this so it looks nice. Right. And I do, and I do try, like I did sew the lips and that was. I mean, all, the only thing I know about like costuming is from watching Drag Race, to be honest. Really? Well, yeah. And most of it is more along the lines of, you know, there's your camp of ladies that are like, okay, yeah, I know how to sew and you better watch out. And then there's <laughs> the other ones that are like, I can use a hot glue stick and like, <laughs> It baffles me because I'm like, if I were entering a competition like that, I would think I would want to know at least like basics, you know, like literally just make me make me know what a cutout is so I can like know my dimensions or whatever. And or like, hopefully, like I can turn a pile of garbage into something by like just like a lot of draping and a lot of like whatever and like yeah. safety pens. But I don't. I would not trust my ability to uh, to go on that show and be like, let me create a beautiful gown. But I mean, sometimes the hot glue stick girls win. I mean, because it's not, it's not, they're not looking at the seams, right? Like if they're not looking at the stitching. Some, right? I mean, it depends, you know, it well, depends on what there. like, uh, well, what the threshold is, honestly. Like if all of them are like really good and like most of them know how to sew like you're gonna tell the one that did not like him the bottom of their dress and it looks like shit and there's fraying everywhere and all that stuff I don't know yeah literally like everything I've done is trial and error like I don't know I, I mean I I don't yeah I'm trying to think of how I would do it and I would literally just like fold up the flap and like put some safety pens and like call it a day because I would be like I don't know how to do this like I gotta yeah. go <laughs> yeah, sometimes I hot glue seams but typically I'll sew them it depends on what it is good for you but, but even if I sew a hem I still have to like use this stuff called I think it's called fray check I don't know if they talk about this on RuPaul's Drag Race. Not at all. It's a goddamn mess. Oh, I'm sure. 
but it's great. I mean, it like keeps the, it like where I cut the fabric, it like keeps it from fraying, but okay. like, there you go. There you go. Pro tip. You only, or like very amateur tip. <laughs> right. I will block that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the, but, I think the only reference I have to drag kings, especially like nationwide drag kings, is Murray Hill. Mm-hmm. Like I've seen him on a lot of television shows, especially in like the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, but now he's on a show called Drag Me to Dinner. Have you seen this? I haven't watched it yet. I need to watch it though. You know, it's not I'm my like favorite. My, I'm like picking up my pen. I'm like, I've got to write this down. <laughs> it's <laughs> muscle memory. Like, right. It's truly bizarre. I think you will enjoy it. Uh, Alaska's in there. Willem's in there. Like Jinx yeah. Monsoon. Like uh, everybody f- that is famous from Drag Race is on that show. Yeah. Uh, but Murray Hill is the, he's the host. So it's very, it's very cute. It's very bizarre. And Neil Patrick Harris and his husband are the ones that like put all this on. Oh my God. Okay. I've got it. What do you watch it on? Is it on? It's on WoW. Wow. I don't know if you have that, but. <clears throat> I figured it out. Oh wait, no, it's on, Um, I think it's on Hulu or something. Anyway, you can, you can Google it. That's what I'm going to do. Marie Hill is definitely the first, is the first drag king I ever saw. And I didn't understand what a drag king was. I just like knew that marie hill was in drag like i didn't you know yeah yeah yeah. i'm like oh this is like not he is not and i'm like i couldn't like really think of the words to describe it but i was like okay something else is going on here well that's like part of like the importance of vocabulary right it's like we need yeah we need words to describe these things otherwise we're like i don't know I don't know. Uh, no, I, I actually talk about that all the time. I Well, not all the time, but I talk about it with my closest friends whenever we like hang out and stuff, because I'm like, it's so weird to me that 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have this vocabulary. Like we didn't have non-binary. We didn't have like all of these descriptors like cis male or whatever. Like who would have known to call things what like they actually are? I think it's, you know, we we don't have to get into it now or on this podcast, but like... Um, oh, we definitely should. But I, I think it's a very liberating thing for some people. And I think it's a very, uh, like, if you go too far down that rabbit hole, you get into like Republican territory where it's like they use the words against you when um, really like a, a tool is a tool, right? It's not the word's fault that it's used, but it's still, it is still a tool and we, it's up to us to use it and take ownership of those words you know like especially with trans vocabulary I think it's so important to just know like why not like if especially if it's just a word and it makes that person feel more comfortable in their own skin like why not use it like it's not gonna hurt you at all to say a word totally yeah and I think I think that's such a good point because words have power you know And a lot of it is kind of hard for me to express or put my finger on, right? But when, when, it's like when I came out, for example, like I can't put to words the sense of like peace and power that I felt in saying like, okay, I'm a lesbian. Right. (laughs) And, but that sensation was so overwhelming. It felt like, 
something clicked into place. You know, it felt like I had really found like my true north and myself. Right. Yeah. And so I understand like the importance of needing to claim these words and to explore our identities and and determine what fits for us and what doesn't work for us. Yeah. And I mean, it's just really interesting to look at how that power that words hold can be manipulated depending on who's using them, you know? 100%. I mean, you can even like express it towards the, uh, towards the medical community too. Like 15 years ago, we had the word autistic and we had the word Asperger's, right? And it's like, we as teenagers, okay, we had those words and they were typically used in derogatory fashion. Nice. You know? Like, yeah. I, I'm sure I used them and I thought that that was funny, you know, the same way that uh, straight people would use gay as funny, you know, like it's, it is one of those words that doesn't really have, it shouldn't have a connotation, uh, but like, depending on who's using it, it does. So right now, like, I have so many people in my life that are autistic, like yeah. they just are. And it's not any, like, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just a a little piece of their puzzle and I'm just like oh, okay cool sounds good like let's move on like do I need to do anything to like help your uh help your day out like are you gonna be okay you're good okay bye yeah <laughs> I think with like ableist with our community with like whatever like it should be something that's just kind of like okay I'm gonna take an inventory of whatever you define yourself as and whatever affliction ability like whatever you have and then we're gonna we can either touch on it or not like what do you want to do about it right no I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think it's it's come up in conversation so much for me even just in the last week mm. like so many friends of mine in the recovery community and in the drag community like so many friends of mine are being diagnosed and self-diagnosed with autism as adults, you know, and like a lot of us that were diagnosed with, you know, I was diagnosed with ADD, which now it's ADHD. A lot of us that, especially AFAB people that were diagnosed with ADD as kids are finding out that they were misdiagnosed or that they have, they also have autism. Sure. And I mean, it is, that's also a spectrum too, right? Like it's absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> 100%. Uh, as my like grandmother would say, everybody's a little touched, you know, like it's literally like nobody gets out of this world alive. So like, just accept your flaws. It doesn't matter like what category you put them in. If it makes, if it makes you feel better to know that there is a name for what you're going through. Great. Awesome. Right. Like whatever gets you through the day, whatever, honestly, whatever medication you need to, like to feel whatever your sense of normal is great. I think that is awesome for you. Totally. I, I completely agree. After I got sober, I did a, um, it was important to me to do an adult ADHD evaluation Sure. because I started taking medication for it when I was six. I stopped taking any meds cold turkey when I graduated college because I was like I'm an adult now and I don't need <laughs> I don't need this I'm not in school and so like, which was <laughs> by the way focus. so unwise <laughs> because then I launched like immediately when I graduated college I started working as an 
assistant to an agent, which mm -hmm. like that role does not align with my characteristics, my strengths, my weaknesses. Like it's like a complete mismatch, but Lord knows I tried to force that square peg in a round hole for over three years. And it was so traumatic because I wasn't an acceptance of my needs, you know? And yeah. so in not recognizing and accepting my needs and that aspect of who I am. And then I had such a horrible, really hard experience. And I was very ineffective at my job. I mean, I think like I was good. I, you know, I've built a career based on that first job, but like, you know, I just have, I have a lot of compassion for that person. And I'm also like, wow, like that was, you really just ignored <laughs> everything about who you were. So I went for years being unmedicated. And then I did this adult evaluation and I'm talking with the psychiatrist and she's looking at my results. And she was like, it is incredible that you have maintained a built a career and kept a job without medication all of this time. <laughs> like <laughs> she was like, no wonder you're an alcoholic. I like, love that she was like surprised that you're still alive, right? Like this is extreme. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I know. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what is so amazing? I really feel like since that validation that I got from that conversation, I really have been able to look at my neurodivergence and see it as a superpower because I'm able to look at like, okay, like this is something that will use more energy for me than it does for someone who doesn't have this particular like ADHD or whatever. And yeah. so this is the best way for me to go about this for me. And I think like, I'm really lucky that I work from home now. So I'm able to kind of like adjust my schedule and lifestyle accordingly. But like, mm -hmm. if I didn't accept the reality of like how different my mind is, then I wouldn't be able to make, I wouldn't have the tools or the information to like make the changes I need in order to have like not just a successful life, but a really rewarding and fulfilling life where like yeah. I get to like, I have, I need creative outlets. And I like, you know, I really think that like hyper-focus that comes with ADHD is like a superpower. I have no idea if you haven't have experience with ADHD, but like. No, <laughs> I don't, unfortunately, because <laughs> I wish that I had that like hyper-focus. My, my like outside looking in on like Adam Richardson is like, you exist in hyper-focus. <laughs> I wish. I had to deal with a lot of like crippling anxiety. I want to say like right before, right before or during the pandemic. I can't remember. You know what? It was during 2020, 2021 that I started seeing a therapist. Um, I just stopped sleeping. <laughs> I could not sleep. I was... Um, really debilitated by it and I couldn't figure out why um so I went well I didn't go I zoomed with my therapist and um that was the main focus of like just trying to figure out exactly why I was having these 
like minor anxiety and panic attacks. And I mean, it was all work related and like some personal as well, but I, I couldn't figure out why this was happening. And because usually I'm very good at like compartmentalizing, like putting it in a tiny box, putting it in my mind and like shutting it away. You know, ever since my dad died, it was like, okay, well, this is a tiny baby trauma. We're going to like pack it tightly and then throw it away. And then, the, oh, this is another one. And we're just going to pack it tightly and throw it away. Oh, and here's a few more traumas. Uh, we're just going to pack those up and like put them it, like I thought I was doing myself a favor without ever looking at those things because I'm like, no need. Why, why do we need to like revisit these things? Like I've clearly already gone through it. That could have been, you know, true to a certain, certain degree, but uh, I certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't done, at least glancing at them, looking at them, making sure that I have gone through, gone through the emotions, gone through the mental capacity that I needed to, so that I actually could put it away. So that was what she was truly focused on, because she's like, okay, I love her so much. She's this like very Staten Island broad that from (laughs) and she's like cream of the crop she's literally like okay so let's let's talk about all this stuff I like I was ready I'm like maybe it's all about my trauma let's just dive in and she's like hold on have you already gone through all this stuff before (laughs) I mean yeah uh and she's like okay do we need to talk about your father? And I'm like, all right, well, well we can if you'd like. And she's like, not my question. <laughs> so like she made me really look at everything to make sure that I was done. And then she's like, okay, put it away. You're good. Like, we don't need to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, that's kind of freeing because I thought, you know, there's, I think there's a part of like my inner child that's like clinging on to those things because I think they're memories, but they're really just like traumatic events that I'm like keeping in my muscles that keep me from sleeping. Yeah. I didn't really put together until I went through therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Our trauma, we carry it around with us. There's a difference also between throwing it away and putting it away. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like throwing it away is like lack of processing, lack of claiming. And just utter disregard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, eventually it bites you in the ass because you can't just throw something that you experienced away. Like you could try, but eventually it creeps up on you. It's always a part of who you are, you know? Yeah. Uh, And how that manifests is kind of up to you and how you process it. Yeah. So, and through all of that, I figured out, you know, what my triggers were with anxiety and all that stuff, because I'm, I can't hyper-focus, especially when I am being pulled in a million different directions by a million people, especially at work. I clam up, I shut down, I start having heart palpitations. I start like, I, I like stress, I like like the pressure to perform well. I think I do very well in those regards. However, I have my limit and I I am learning, I'm still in the process of learning what my boundaries are and how to say like, please go to somebody else. Yeah. Or, you know, come back to me later, do something. You know, there's so many other buzzwords, but since I'm 
the ripe old age of 35 right now. Like I am one of the elders in my in my workplace. So I have to I recognize that and I don't shy away from it, but it's also like I'm dealing with 19 to 25 year olds now. So there's a whole generation gap that I have to, you know, I have to talk to and deal with. Right. Do you find it's hard setting boundaries with people in a different generation because it seems like maybe you just speak a different language sometimes or what do you think is the kind of roadblock there? I don't think it's the language. I think it's the, sometimes I find that there's a different work ethic Mm -hmm. involved. I'm still on the fence about whether they have it figured out that they have set boundaries better than I have. (laughs) Because I think as, especially as millennials, I think you could probably attest to this too. Like I won't call out of work unless like I am on my deathbed. I will like be the first one to say like, oh, let me take that on because clearly like you need me to. They're the first ones to be like, oh, and I need the next three months off. Is that okay? And I'd be like, what? No, I have to fire you. Like, that's not okay. Like, (laughs) there's there's no way around this, ma'am. Like, I... (laughs) Oh, interesting. I... Seriously, I'm dealing, I am actually dealing with that specific scenario right now. Um, I'm having one, two, three cooks going to Europe. Just by, and they had, they were very professional about it. They told me months in advance. One of them has a, a program. She's young. She's like 22 and she's going to Europe to, uh, do like a cooking program of some sort for three months. Uh, another one she's like I need a break and I need two months off I'm like okay (laughs) like and then uh, yeah and then the other one's like "Ah, I just feel like I need to take a month to myself and and I'm like this isn't how working works like your PTO is gone it was gone in March so like I don't know how to tell you this but sir like there is no more for me to pay you and they're like oh yeah that's okay I'm like I'm gonna have to fire you do you understand that like more than 20 like our policy is more than 21 days you're fired so yeah that specific scenario is going on and I I don't think I would ever even consider like I would quit first and then do my thing and then like maybe I could call them back but they're like counting on their jobs being there for them when they get back and I'm like, I, I can't guarantee. Sorry. No. Isn't that strange? That is so strange. I mean, also, like, I, for whatever reason, the way that I have grown up in as an adult in my attitude toward my career is like, maybe I'll take like a Friday and a Monday off to do a long weekend to visit family. Like, okay, here and there, like, I try to do like, you know, I'll have like one week where I go on vacation, but it's got to be like, I like work remote and, you know, and that's my own shit. Like I'm definitely entitled to time off, but it's also interesting because there's like my company. And I know that a lot of companies now, like smaller companies are doing unlimited PTO. I mean, obviously you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of the theory is that if you have unlimited PTO, then people take less of it, which has been 
true. Like that's proven <laughs> to be the case for me. Is your company mainly like millennials and up? Yeah. Well, the lead in leadership. So I th- I also have another theory about millennials that we well I can only speak for myself honestly, but I am riddled with guilt whenever I put in PTO requests. I don't know about you, but I'm just like, oh my god, I I don't know why, but I I'm like on the edge of my seat, like I oh I don't know I don't, and then I put it in, and they're like, okay, that's fine, and I'm like ah, like are you sure? Right. <laughs> And it's just a week. Like, it's literally not that big of a deal. And I am, like, finally, like, coming to terms kind of with it. But I still feel that, like, pang of guilt. I just don't do it. I don't don't have guilt. I have fear that keeps me from doing it. And I always, and I always have, like, my, like, oh, like, I'm going to be traveling on these days but like I'm gonna be like available and I'm gonna be online and I'm gonna be like checking my email I'm just you know right, right, right. out of pocket occasionally yeah um, but I don't know I mean it's kind of like to a certain extent I wonder like what how much of that is fear and how much of that is just saying like look like this is my job and there's nobody else that does my job so right. like this has to get done Kind of yeah. like what you were saying, like this has to get done. And if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, that I can absolutely re- relate to that. Yeah. But yeah, I have worked with a lot of people in Gen Z that um, I have noticed that they have this kind of almost like confidence in just saying like when they have time off, they have this kind of courage. It feels, or I receive it as courage, right? For them, it's probably just like, no, this is just, what it is but for me like you have this like courage or maybe entitlement to you know oh no like I'm not here those days and I receive it as like a lack of ownership you know yes that's exactly it I but I like the other half of my brain is like wait do they have this figured out and I just don't like (laughs) (laughs) because time off is time off like I'm not gonna I there's no argument like on paper like it makes complete sense but I'm like wait a minute you're not doing your job effectively but really like no they are they're doing just fine like right I do feel like there's a level of like risk taking that maybe like Gen Z and I don't know what 19 to 25 year olds are. are they not Gen Z? I think there's uh, I think they're still Gen Z. I don't know. But there's a I feel like there's a level of risk taking. Um, confidence. It's all confidence. It's yeah. great. I mean, it's that's something that I admire about about that uh, generation. Yeah, I can't imagine. And also now I'm like, well, I have a dog, so I can't. my dog no like I've told myself I'm like this is the Marvin chapter like where like I'm the dog mom and I cannot leave for an extended period of time and that's too too important yeah and and I'm like you know what and like the next chapter like maybe that'll be my traveling chapter right now I'm in the Marvin chapter so I don't I that's the thing I'm like I have no idea how people who own dogs and have jobs just like pick up and leave <laughs> yeah I've known you since we were in high school we went to HSPVA together here youngsters in- yeah I feel like I think we met on the first day of freshman year mm-hmm. absolutely I remember you yep 
we got reacquainted as adults when we were both living in New York. And now I'm so excited to have this excuse to learn more about who you are and who you've been uh, below the surface all of those years and um, what makes you tick and gets you up every day and all of that. Because from where I sit, you're just such an incredibly inspiring person. I mean, it's true. I mean, even when we were kids, I was like, oh, this guy, so smart, so on top of it, so like talented. Um, so very sweet. Thank you. When you think back on growing up, what stands out the most to you? Grew up in Northwest Houston and, uh, I was in the Aldean school district. Uh, and I spent a lot of time at church, like a lot of time at church. I considered myself a church boy. Um, definitely like Sundays and Wednesday, I think Wednesday was choir practice. I definitely like got singing there. Like that was my like creative outlet. And then I like did the whole choir thing with school as well. I was part of the like Aldine Honor Choir, I think it was called. And then I was part of the Houston Boy Choir after that. And then um, from there, met one of the teachers at PBA and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) and then uh (laughs) auditioned for hspva got in and continued my singing journey but that was that was like the bulk of my the bulk of my childhood it was all centered around music music and church yeah you and me both We've got to go ahead and just like give a shout out to Carol Nelson because there is no way that she's going to see that you're being interviewed on here and she doesn't listen to it, right? Yeah, Carol with an E. She was a really challenging teacher for me in high school. And it's so interesting. There are a lot, there were a number of teachers like that in high school where just my, in my personal experience, like my insecurities and my need to be a people pleaser and to be perfect, and then to be met with criticism, or, you know, constructive, or whatever, or to, you know, get in trouble for being yourself, or <laughs> loud, or whatever, yeah. You know, as a kid, like, that really tarnishes those relationships in my eyes, right, and then to grow up, and to, because of social media, or just life circumstance, to become reacquainted with these people, I'm like, wow, you are so kind (laughs) yeah it's so interesting because I can think of a number of teachers that I had where like the seed was planted in bad soil because of my own experiences or because of like you know what I was going through or you know but in actuality like you know 15 20 years later you're like oh they didn't really mean any harm I was just in a bad place myself Or like, I didn't have the respect for them then that I do now. And it's like, I think she's a prime example of that because I felt like I could walk all over her. Mm -hmm. And that was part of my defense mechanism in high school. Like I was so angry because I didn't, I didn't accept myself. You know, I came out of the closet when I was 14 years old 
because I went to PVA, thank goodness, I like saw everything around me and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I came out and my parents, they disowned me. They were just like, yeah, this isn't happening in this household. And so I went back in the closet because I was confused. I'm like, why aren't my parents, like my parents are my number one supporters. Like they've supported me through all of this. And now like roadblock, like, nope, this is a no-go, not in this household, can't do it. I lived with my grandmother, I lived with my aunts, like everybody else in my life, they saw me and they're just like, yeah, you're okay. Like, don't like, she'll come around, like they'll come around, don't worry about it. And it was, it was super confusing for me because of the environment I was in at school. What, and actually church, church, like they were so accepting. And so just, I was surrounded with love by the ministers, by like uh, my peers, like they didn't give a shit. They didn't care. They were just like, okay, sounds good. And then at home, it was like, it was toxic. But I had to bottle that in, you know, like it was it was something that I couldn't express and I didn't know how to express. So I was just like a mean person. And like there's a reason that I was most likable jerk for my senior superlative. Like I was. <laughs> but no one knew any of this because I didn't share it. Like, how would I share it? Like I knew how to defend myself with words. So I made sure because I was always the pudgy person or because I was always like the person wearing a hoodie that wasn't comfortable in his own skin. Like I knew how to defend myself that way. And so I made sure no one would ever put me down. And that was how I did it. Like that was how I survived high school and high school itself. Wasn't a bad experience at all. I can't say it was, but you know, everything in my personal life was not great. So Like, I had to be a completely different person at home than I was anywhere else. And it wasn't until my dad died uh, senior year uh, that my mom started to come around and she realized, because I'm an only child, like, this this is it. Like, you either accept me or not. It was also easier for me, too, because I moved away. I moved 700 miles away to Nashville, Tennessee, months after my dad died I offered I was like mom I don't have to go to school like I can stay like I know you need me right now and she said no she's like no your dad would want you to go to school at that time I was the only like grandchild in my family to go to college Mm -hmm. everyone else was like had their own issues and like had to start working or whatever did your parents give any kind of explanation because I feel like if the people in your church community were accepting and loving, like, where were your parents coming from? Do you know? Their own backgrounds. And it's hypocritical, too, because my mom has a ton of gay friends. <laughs> like, I was surrounded by gay individuals my entire life. I didn't really put that together, that that was what they were. Like, we would take out our, like, organist at church or, you know, one of her best friends to this day. Like, I don't think they identify as gay, but they, they're two ladies that have, like, a crew cuts that live together and sleep in the same bed. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) 
need I say more? Um, but best friends, they've been best friends for the majority of my mom's life. But uh, yeah, I think it was that inclination that I was going to be bullied. Like it was definitely a fear thing. It was a fear for my soul. It was a fear for like, you know, you name it. They were scared of it. When I came out to them, they mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah multiple times. Like they thought that like fiery asteroids were going to come down to earth. You know what I mean? And like, it was kind of an awakening for me too, because my faith in God was super strong until that moment. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wait, they were supposed to be on my side. And I thought this was going to be like a hugging moment. And now it's like, let's pray together and pray for your soul. And I'm like, oh, got it. Oh my God. And you were, you were 14? Yeah. It was, it was a tumultuous time. That's for sure. Were y'all Methodist at the time? Yeah. My mom specifically drove me to the pastor, like our pastor at our church, super cool lady. She prefaced it with being like, I need you to speak to the pastor. As in like, what's going to happen? Like an exorcism? Like I'm, I had no idea, but I went in there, of course, with like my arms crossed, like ready, ready to like do or like, I, like you're setting me up to deal with someone, something that I, have already dealt with and like you are expecting a different outcome than what is planned for me so I went in there and she's like yeah like what she asked me she's like what do you expect to happen right now and I'm like well I think you're gonna try to turn me straight or something (laughs) and she's like okay so that's not gonna happen like you're fine as you are like I have no qualms with you being gay or whatever. Like I think you're perfect in my eyes. And she said, "This is some literature for your mom." And it was literally labeled like homosexuality and like dealing with your child or whatever. And I like sk- skimmed through because I didn't want it to be like make sure to like lock them in the basement or whatever. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> And it was all uplifting stuff. It was very sweet. And we just sat there. She made me tea. We drank. She asked me, you know, if I had a boyfriend, if I had any of that stuff. And she was just being like a normal, nice person. And that was what I needed at that time, which was nice. Yeah. Sounds like your mom did not get the, it doesn't sound like that went the way that she anticipated. Right. When I got back in the car, because she stayed in the parking lot the entire time. (laughs) When I got back in the car, I gave her the literature and she like pursed her lips because she you know she expected a different outcome she i don't know what she expected but she definitely didn't expect me to be you know rosy cheeked and ready to go home or whatever wow and so then did did they they basically said that you can't live in this house anymore It, it was kind of a mutual agreement that i would stay somewhere else while I was going through this thing. So I stayed with my grandmother at the time, her mom, and I stayed with my aunt as well. And then eventually, like, I missed my parents. So I went back in the closet. Like, I just told them, like, oh, it's definitely, definitely a phase. But I mean, the seed had already been planted. You know what I mean? Like, it, they threatened to take me out of PBA. They're like, is this the reason why you're this way? Or... It was baffling to me but that they were trying to point fingers, like place blame, like find any other reason other than, you know, this is just how I am and who I am. 
I didn't even at the time consider it a big part of who I was because I, I wasn't sexually active. Yeah. I like pined after boys and all that stuff, but like, I, I just knew, I knew this about myself and I was sharing with them and then they just like squashed it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so heartbreaking. It's like, it's like parents are given this opportunity to celebrate this i mean because what an incredible accomplishment right to have that level of self-awareness and acceptance and honesty at that age you know and and then also queerness or sexuality is such a great like beautiful part of who you are and so it's like this is another like this is a step toward me becoming more of the person who I am and want to be. And we would hope that our parents would be like, wow, this is huge, like so exciting, you know, just like you were expecting. It's just so unfortunate. I have friends who are around our age whose parents still don't, you know, still aren't supportive. And and it's like, how... Can you think that you love your son? You know, I just, it, it, it baffles me and it breaks my heart. And I'm really sorry that you went through that. I, I did see you in high school, you know, I did, I saw anger and also like, you've always been such like a, a kind and like tender person. So I did, I definitely saw that you were going through something challenging but I had no I had no idea yeah I I think my parents just because I was 14 they called it confusion they called it acting out they called it you know everything else that they thought it might be instead of what it was yeah they thought I was just trying to be a a kid who didn't understand what identity was And I think that's, you know, it circles back to what we were talking about before with uh, language. You know, we have more words, we have more language now that we can use as tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that you believed your parents to a certain extent when you went back, when you went back in the closet? Yeah, I tried. Yeah, of course. I absolutely I was like, well, they have to be right. Like they're my parents. Like, of course, I have to, like, I, this is something that I have to squash down. And it was something that I, like, in my younger, I want to say, like, eight to 12, like, I started having feelings, like, I kind of knew. And um, I thought I was possessed by the devil, you know, like, it was one of those things where I had one of those, like, teen Bibles, and it was all different topics were highlighted, and homosexuality was one of them. And I remember there were three verses in there and I would go to it and I'd be like, oh, so this isn't right. <laughs> I would be so heartbroken because I'm like, how do I deal with this? And it was a constant battle because I just I didn't understand how how I'm supposed to shut something off. I mean, I know people are very successful at it, but at that especially eight to 14, I was like, I didn't have that much success with, you know, turning off the thoughts. Well, because you're Adam Richardson, you're just, you're stronger than that. The person who you are was like, hell no. <laughs> I feel like I'm just really stuck. Yeah. <laughs> you're not, 
no, like (laughs) (laughs) it took me getting sober to finally realize that my parents didn't necessarily know me better than I know myself. It took me getting sober to realize that my parents are wise and they tried their best. But at the end of the day, I have access and awareness and connection to who I am more than anyone else. Growing up high school and early adulthood, I was completely reliant on other people's validation and opinions to dictate what I believe to be the right thing for me. So I really, I feel like that, you know, that time when you went back into the closet is basically like, it's kind of how I lived my life because I, because not because I felt like I was defying who I was, but because I truly did not trust myself. I don't know if this was your experience too, but I think that in part it had to do with growing up, going to church every Sunday and the way that I receive all of this information at church isn't always going to be the most healthy and useful. And so I think one one takeaway I had was that I'm super flawed. That combined with a really young ADHD diagnosis combined with like really like anxiously, critically loving mother, you know, like all of that combined made it absolutely impossible for me to think that my intuition was something worth listening to you know it's interesting that you bring up like the flaws of humans because I it took I don't know if you can relate to this but it took me a very long time to fully realize human fallacy it took me until college to realize like oh the bible was written by man and I have to realize that that like Anybody that wrote that shit, like they had their own opinions that, yeah, they can say that they were what, like had the Holy Spirit or whatever, but mm, in general, like they were probably commenting on exactly what was going on around them. So, and also like anybody that spews stuff at church, anybody that spews stuff like our elders, like they are flawed. Like they're probably going to give the best advice that they can, but at the end of the day, like you're going to have to trust your gut if it's right or not. And it took me a long, long time to realize that, you know, all of my teachers, all of my elders, parents, all of the, they don't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. And it's up to me to find out exactly what I want to know, what I want to glean from all of this, whether it's the right answer or not. Like it is truly my responsibility to look it up, to find out for myself. You know, I used to get really upset with my first boyfriend because he would ask me shit while we had smartphones in our hands. And I'm like, can you fucking look it up? Like I, why are you asking me this inane information that I don't give a shit about when truly Mr. Google is right here, like, for your pleasure. Like, please, sir, use the phone. Like, you're asking me something that I don't know that I'm going to have to look up when you are on your phone right now. It's the ultimate laziness. Really irks me. Like, I don't know why or how it gets so under my skin, but it's 
up there with like following through on plans if you say you're gonna do something and you don't do it like my my eyes cross my mind explodes and I'm just like why didn't you just do it Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm going to have to change the toilet paper roll now because you didn't do it I so harshly judge that person I want to say that one of my faults that I have definitely carried into adulthood is if I if you're already on my shit list I have already truly like given up contact i'm i'm probably going to be like on acquaintance levels with you but if you try to pry deeper i will give you one word answers and i will still walk away i don't think you need my time or deserve my time because you have already proven yourself worthless in my eyes And that is very harsh, I know, but if you have done your duty and I I don't want to know you better, like you're wasting my time. So what are some of those deal breakers? Like how does someone get on your shit list? I've got to, I've got to make sure I don't do it. Oh no, it's, you're not on my shit list. It's, it's that, um, let's say a server comes down and I I call her down, I should say. Like, I need to speak to Jordan about a table. Please bring her down. She comes down and she then says, what do you, what do you need? I'm like, first off, this is about an allergy. This is about something that you made an error on. And I need to figure out because I'm already pulling you away from the floor, which you need to be on. So I wouldn't just call you down. And it's yes, chef. And Mm -hmm. she said, Oh, and I'm like, okay. And I explained the situation and she gave me the answer. And then now she refuses to talk to me. That's fine. Petty, 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 petty. You know, like in my eyes, I'm like, ma'am, you've created the scenario where I hate you. I don't hate you. I don't care about you. Mm -hmm. Sorry, but you're here to do your job and you typically do it well. But if I ask you something, and I'm your superior. Like, please just answer the question. You don't even have to call me chef, but be a little respectful, please. Be like, hey, did you need something? Like, instead of like, what do you need? Excuse me? I know we're all here to do a job, but just like, please, ma'am. Ma'am. <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> so, yeah, I now I go out of my way, actually, to say hello to her. I'm like, hello, Jordan. <laughs> did you watch mad men no okay i'm sorry i tried uh when it was first on i watched i watched like uh two three episodes and i never got in i never got into it yeah it's i love everybody in it oh yeah i mean honestly after watching the entire series i'm like whoo that was a lot i don't know if i would would take that on again like it was it was fantastic, but it was a lot. But there's one scene where this, you know, Don Draper obviously is like superior to everyone in multiple ways, but especially at in like the work hierarchy. But mm-hmm. so Don gets on the elevator with this guy who's like new and chipper and young and whatever. But he Bob looks at looks at Don and is like, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> and Don goes, I don't think about you. yeah i i have to agree with don on that like i i do try i do try to be be like really 
positive and I try to be like this, this fun force in the kitchen or in my everyday life. But if like, why would I spend my mental capacity on other people's thinking of me, you know, like, I don't care. And also I'm too old to really care about that stuff now. Like I'm not in high school. I'm not in college. Like I have my like popularity ranking is truly, I I don't care. Right. Yeah. I'm not running for prom king. (laughs) And I feel like I have gotten to a point in my life where I have done so much work to become secure in who I am and not just secure, but enthusiastic, right? To really be leaning into being present and showing up for my life as my authentic self. That doesn't mean that I don't feel lonely. You know, that doesn't mean that I don't. Yeah, you're human. Right. That doesn't mean that I don't want people to like me or want to be my friend or want that I don't want to be included, you know? But it does mean that's not my priority. For whatever reason, there are are people that aren't warm to me, warm and friendly to me, then... Great, bye. Yeah, it doesn't say anything about me. Mm -hmm. You know, it says nothing about me. No, not at all. My God. And the thing is, my priorities might shift. Like, I might want to be liked that day. And it's totally fine. Absolutely. 100%. It totally depends on the person. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I do know that I feel confident and fulfilled with the person that I'm showing up as in this scenario. So it's not like I'm in this place of like, oh, how can I, what do I need to change in order to get them to like me or want to spend time with me? You know, it's just, it's a very different very different dynamic than how things used to be when I felt like I needed to really like morph and adjust in order to get other people's approval. Well, it's that feeling of being more selective instead of being selected, you know, like you don't feel like, oh, I hope I'm not picked last in dodgeball. Like you get to be the one that's like, oh no, I want to hang out with that person because they, I, I like their vibe. I, they seem like good people. Yeah. Because I am going through a time right now where like, you know, Sunday night, like I felt really lonely. You know, I got these pictures, my my sister, or I think my brother-in-law sent some pictures of my niece and I was looking at them and I just started crying. Yeah. And, you know, and I, cause I felt lonely and I miss them and yeah. And, and it's okay. There's, you know, there's nothing like, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's like good information there for me about what I need, what I want, where I'm at in life. And I was talking to my therapist about it on Tuesday because it's like, I have feelings that I find to be, I view as negative, right? And like feeling lonely. And I'm like, what do I have to change so that I can not feel this way? And she's like, you know, this could be a sign that, you know, you're on the verge of changing your social group. You know, you're in a point in your life where you're exposing yourself to new people and you have a couple people that, you know, have are really tried and true friends. And it's okay to be sad that you don't have like, you know, you're not included in the clique or whatever, which I have never been in my life. But (laughs) but it sounds like, you know, there's there's more to come. 
And so it was really nice yeah. to be like this, have this like, okay, that feeling is validated. And also like, I can just continue to feel it. It's okay. Yeah. And it gives me hope for what's next. Absolutely. I think our therapist must be talking because it's, it's the same. It's truly the same. It's you, what she encourages is like, go through that emotion. It, don't tamp it down. Just like feel the emotion, feel it for what it is. And then whenever you are done with it, like it's okay to move on. It is okay to change your friendship group. It's okay to just like experience new things. Uh, what I, one thing that I really admire about you is you always put a hundred percent into every single thing you do and you're never afraid or you're not outwardly afraid of trying new things it is something that I've always admired about you but even now in your adult life I'm just like I'm in awe Mm. (laughs) Thank thank you yeah I've been thinking about that lately I'm like because you know I have people reaching out like you know or like someone like you know, like a woman being like, oh, let's get dinner. Let's hang soon. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. But like, I have enough scary things going on in my life. <laughs> like, yeah. have, you know, like it's it's been an interest. I've been I've just been observing lately. I finally noticed like, oh, I am. I'm doing a few things. I'm doing things that scare me, you know, yeah. starting a podcast, performing drag doing I just was in a drag comedy show on Tuesday which was super out of my comfort zone (laughs) and um and you know that produces a lot of like I am scared of putting myself out there and trying these new things and so living with that kind of anxiety and fear takes a lot of energy because I'm really you know I'm trying to channel it in a like a productive and you know and it's working like it works for me you know I I it keeps my it keeps life interesting and it's you know and I'm doing things that are important to me it's for the longest time I was like man that's so cool that people do those things like interview now you're a part of them and now I'm like oh like this looks cool I'm gonna try it (laughs) I love that yeah, I do too. But it's it, it does come back to priorities because that's like a priority of mine. So it means that I do have to make sacrifices in my life so that I can make sure that I'm maintaining balance and like my mental health. Sure. And I think the recognition is there too. Like as long as you recognize that if you're asked to do something or you want to do something, do it or not. Like it's totally your decision and your call. Uh, if you are interested in hanging out with this person, like that is something that you can decide for yourself. You don't have to be the yes man all the time. You can say like, hey, right now, my I don't have that capacity. I don't have that within my wheelhouse. Can we can we range up? Amen. And that is OK. Amen. Amen. And how they receive it from there is not your problem. That's on them. Yeah, it is totally whatever you know, that's another person's anxiety and insecurity. And I, it took me, that also took me a long time to realize. It's the same. (laughs) (laughs) It's like something I have to remind myself of every day. And sometimes I forget to remind myself (laughs) and I'm like, I don't want them to think I'm rude. And then I'm like, Wait a second. If they think you're rude, like they have another, you're like, you're one of the nicest people I've ever met. So (laughs) I can't even tell you, Adam, 
Thank you. <laughs> okay. So I guess I would like to talk about college. You went to Belmont, which I I remember there were a lot of people talking about Belmont when we were... At the time, yeah. I guess now with like musical theater, I Jillian... Do you remember Jillian? Did you meet her? Anyway, we went, we went to college together and... Oh, did y'all live together when you lived in Spanish Harlem? Yes. You might have met her. Anyway. I did. Um, yes. So I think she said it was like big and musical theater now for whatever reason but there have been a lot of pop and country artists that have come out of belmont lately i digress so yeah belmont um went there (laughs) shortly after my dad passed away and it was great i needed a change of scenery i needed that just like out of sight out of mind you know my mom was going through her own grief like she was seeing a grief counselor thank god but she had a lot to, you know, come to terms with because of my, my dad committed suicide. Mm-hmm. So that was, it, it was unexpected. It was not something that, you know, we um, anticipated at all. And so I, as a 17 year old was like, please get me out of here. I need to leave. And so I did. Tennessee was great at the time. Uh, freshman year, I like, accidentally made really good friends with this very Christian group (laughs) and uh, (laughs) I lost a ton of weight which was awesome and um, so instead of gaining like the freshman 15 I like lost the freshman 30. I met my first boyfriend there um, when I was 19 and we stayed together for five years which was a long time majored in classical voice performance and music theory Uh, so double major there a lot of work went into it I also realized at the end of my college career that my love of singing is more more of a hobby love than an actual career love and that was a really really tough awakening for me I applied for four schools for master's programs at the end because I was like, no, I'm an opera singer. I'm 100% an opera singer. There's no other career for me. And then I didn't get into anything. And I, I, my boyfriend called my mom at the time because I I was uncontrollably sobbing when I got my rejection letter from the last school. So I was like, surely U of H will take me or something, even though I had no desire to go back to Houston. I was like, fuck Houston. I hate Houston. (laughs) Like, it's so hot. I hate it. (laughs) But yeah, even them, they were just like, no, thank you. And uh, yeah, I was, I was heartbroken because I mean, I was doing this for 17 years, uh, sorry, 21 years of my life at the time. So I was like, I don't know what else to do. I have no other qualifications or skills. <laughs> this is it. I know how to study music and I know how to sing music. Um, and I thought that was enough. And then to be told that you're not enough, it was like, it was a lot. Also at the time I auditioned for the American Music, okay, it's called American Institute of Musical Studies in Graz, Austria. So that was fun. I got to live in Austria for a couple months and I did a program out there. I got into the opera program, but 
there were two programs. It was either the concert program, which was basically like giving art song recitals, or it was the opera program, which was the goal was to uh, sing with an orchestra, you know, do all that stuff. Every audition that I had to sing with an orchestra, I didn't get. And that was kind of like the nail in the coffin. I was like, okay, so my voice isn't big enough. It wasn't as big as they needed it to be. And it was definitely an acceptance for me because I was like, wow, I'm being told that I can't do this thing that I've been studying for for the longest time. And I don't know how else to deal with this now. So I'm going to put it away. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I came back. I came back with $10 in my pocket. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) Um, so you came back from Austria and you came back to where? Nashville. Uh, so my boyfriend was still living in Nashville at the time. I had to live somewhere. So I moved in with him and his roommate, uh, this wonderful 55 year old. And I was like, this is weird. (laughs) As a 21 year old, I'm like, huh, this is strange. Found a job. I, all my summers, I was working with my mom, who was, who is a, uh, a vice president of an insurance company in Houston. So I knew that job already. I became licensed really fast. Uh, and it became a means to an end. Like, I did not care about this job at all. But it paid me well uh, for sitting on my butt for seven and a half hours a day. And I got to leave at 3.30 So it was like, great, let's make some bad decisions. And then I would like buy these like wine packages and like drink three bottles a night or like uh, go to clubs and like really experience the nightlife of Nashville for the first time. There's a great bar called the Lipstick Lounge that is super fun to go to and had karaoke. We would do trivia nights there a lot fun was had in the following three years that I lived there. Uh, And my boss in Nashville, he loved me. We got along really well. I was friends with his family. I am friends with his family. And then my boyfriend at the time decided to move to New York. So around 2012, he moved up before I did because I had planned to transfer my job up there because working from home was like a new thing. Everything was done by the computer anyway. So June 2013, got all my shit in a U-Haul, moved to Brooklyn. And I was terrified. I had also, like, on a whim, decided to uh, go to culinary school. Because I was like, why not? (laughs) Seems like, seems fun. All during my insurance days, I would make pies, cakes, confections for everyone's birthday because I had to do something right like I I didn't really enjoy my job I like turned my mind off during that thing and I would just like look up recipes I'd buy like the the latest pastry book and I would be like oh how do you make croissant dough how do you make puff pastry like how do you do all this stuff and then I just started doing it and bringing it in for people's birthdays and then like they started commissioning me So they would be like, oh, I love that key lime pie that you made. Can you make me one? Like how much? It'd be like $20 and like very underpriced. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like taking the key lime. I'm like, okay, this tiny baby needs to be squeezed. Yeah. (laughs) So dumb. 
Uh, but you know, you live and learn. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I realized that I was kind of good at this. So I'm like, oh, might as well go to culinary school. So signed up for the program, made lifelong friends in my class. We were all basically career changers. So that was cool because everybody had gone, done a career and decided like, no, I want to do something more meaningful and more creative with my talent. Like one of my very good friends to this day, I actually hired and she's the uh, hired at one of my former jobs and she's the executive pastry chef there. So I think that we all have this like a goal in mind and because we're all so driven or have been so driven that we just keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. So it was really cool. Where did you go to culinary school? The French Culinary Institute in Manhattan. Oh, okay. And that now it's International Culinary Experience. <laughs> the The acronym is ICE, I-C-E. The E <laughs> could stand for literally whatever you want. So, um, <laughs> So yeah, during my first year there, I broke up with my boyfriend, which was traumatic in and of itself because I moved, I moved to New York for him. Like culinary school was basically like to keep me occupied. It was a $40,000 hobby that I just happened to enjoy and then got, (laughs) uh, got really good at and moved around. And now I am the chef de cuisine of a Michelin starred restaurant in Manhattan. So how old were you when you started culinary school? 25. 25. Okay. Yeah. I was 25 when I kind of had a, like what I called at the time, my quarter life crisis, because uh, that was when I finally left that job as an agent's assistant and moved to the DC area uh, without a job and ended up getting a job working for 930 Club in DC. But I I didn't know where I was going to land. It wasn't a huge career shift, but it was just from the agency side to the venue side, which is what I needed and wanted to do. So, but at the time it was really terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it is a career shift, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. And a move, you know, I'm so curious about culinary school because it just all seems so magical and like foreign yeah so it literally was a whim like when did you start like was it when people started paying for you to make key lime pies for them I guess kind of it was one of those connect the dots things where I was not really happy doing insurance I was not like it had always been my dream to have a bakery of my own but I didn't really have like the means or the know-how to get there but I figured culinary school would be like a way to get there. I didn't realize that I wanted to work in restaurants. Like it was always, I was more like bakery focused. I did the pastry program at culinary school. And when I started doing it, I was like, oh, I want to learn more. Like this is all fine and dandy. Like I have like a very science driven brain. So like learning all about the science of like sugar, chocolate, butter, fats, and how to work with all that stuff. Like I got, I understood it. And I was like, this is really cool. I love all that stuff. But like, I want to know more. Like how, what about the savory side of pastry? Like, why are we only working with, we only had like a couple of savory products that we made during that entire experience when I was like, well, like 
And I complained. I was like, I feel like pastry could be like expanded upon because yeah, we're making all these breads and pastries and, uh, you know, viennoiserie and all this other stuff, which is cool. But like, what about like the flavor combinations? Like, why can't we work with stuff and bring that into the pastry program? And they're like, well, you got to take the culinary experience. And I'm like, but I paid for the pastry experience. Like, <laughs> like why can't you just tell me what I want to know? Um, <clears throat> but that's when I, I started working in restaurants and realized, oh, this is this is what I want. And the best method of learning is just do it. So I learned that in working in restaurants, like just watch people do it yourself and then figure out how to make the best version of that in your own way. That was my uh, awakening into like, oh, maybe I don't just want a bakery. Maybe I want an entire restaurant. Mm -hmm. Like that would be cool. Did you ever work in a bakery? No. And honestly, I don't have the desire to because uh, it would all be mass production. You know, you'd be making the exact same. We make the same things every day, too, but it would be more uh, niche based and you would just be making like pastries. You'd be making breads and stuff. Would I be fulfilled? Probably. But I wouldn't have like the gamut of what I do in everyday life. I wouldn't have like all the problem solving that I have to do, which I, you know, it's a love hate, but I do enjoy it. I'm, I'm very good at like thinking on my feet and like finding solutions very fast, which in restaurants you have to. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense. You probably, it seems like you do have a lot more freedom in a restaurant. Yeah. And it's just like working around the restrictions of people too. Like, are we able to accommodate this guest if so like you know how do we do so you know like i'm vegan gluten-free and dairy-free like or whatever like and you're like oh god okay so what do we do now you know you and i reconnected when i had moved to new york and you i believe were working at quality italian yes and were you doing you were doing pastry yeah i was the um pastry sous chef of quality italian at that time so I had a team of about like eight people or so that all we did was pastry. So we did the bread program and all of the desserts. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot at quality. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah. We're talking like 600 people walking into the restaurant every single day, right. not that including place- lunch. Yeah. Yeah. That place is enormous. And the menu was so, yeah. It was large. And the bread was so good. <laughs> Yeah, that bread is ridiculous. Where did you go from there? We went to Dinner Table after that. So Dinner Table was a 19-seat restaurant, and it was just me and my current bosses, uh, husband and wife team. We did everything ourselves. We had one server that basically patrolled the tables, but we were also serving. We were also like washing dishes, like making all the food ourselves and presenting it, making the drinks ourselves, like all that stuff. And it was fun it was really really it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done but it was really fulfilling and I I realized in that moment this is what I like I need this just in a more restrictive version of this where we have more free time because Mm -hmm. they wanted us to work seven days a week in the beginning and we were like okay cool and then they're like well what about six and then finally we were like okay no we need a weekend of some sort so we closed on sundays and mondays and then we worked from tuesday to saturday right 
I remember when y'all opened and I remember, I mean, I went there so many times and I remember that's where the lasagna started, right? Yeah, the lasagna. And uh, we brought over two other dishes from there, the chrysanthemum salad, the the big Caesar. And then um, there's uh, a crudo that was passed on that's um, still really good and still on the menu. It sounds like it was just like baptism by fire where you're just switching pastry to like full on everything yeah yeah so there I did I came up with all the I I made the bread I made the pretzel there that I made there was a um all the desserts as well so I handled like the pastry and bread program but aside from that I also picked up like all of the savory food too like it was just everybody had to do everything yeah it was great. It was a great experience because I I had to learn right then and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very all hands on deck. I remember I'd go and I'd sit at the bar and it would just be you at the bar taking the order, giving us food. Yeah, was, and then giving you the check. Yeah. yeah, it was wild. I was like, is there anyone else here? I'm not sure. <laughs> How long was that open? So that project only lasted six months. We opened in March and then we closed that September because my boss has got a better, better offer with the company that we work for now. Right. And it was, it was because dinner table was, it was like a speakeasy kind of. Yeah, it was a, they, the lame term that they came up with was a reverse speakeasy. So you had to go through the bar and then (laughs) Like you had to like flip a switch of some sort and then like, oh, it's, it's a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember. I remember, taking cute. There. I remember taking people there. I took, I think I took Robert there once when he was in town. No, oh, I really? I don't remember seeing Robert. I definitely took a number of people there to impress them. Yeah. Cause it was pretty cool. But then, and then from there y'all opened Don Angie. Yeah. Uh, so they, opened up other restaurants within the group that we're in now uh, before opening up Don Angie. Uh, But the plan was to reconnect later down the road. I didn't have a desire to go back with that company at the time, just because I, I didn't know where I would fit in number one. And number two, I feel like there was a little bit more that I needed to learn slash experience before I just, uh, Popped into another restaurant. So I worked for April Bloomfield, and that was Salvation Burger, Salvation Taco, and White Gold Butchers. Right. Um, I remember when White Gold <clears throat> opened, it was in my neighborhood. I still think about that place. I loved the concept so much because it was a butcher shop slash cafe in the daytime, and then at night they turned it into a restaurant. And I thought it was so cool. And it was delicious. I loved uh, the chef. The chef is living in France now, but Rob was, he was so nice and so incredibly patient as I was like trying to develop their dessert program too. But yeah, unfortunately those restaurants closed, but I, I loved the concepts behind them. Like the Salvation Taco place was really delicious overpriced tacos and uh the burger place the exact same thing it was really it was fantastic it was so good very tasty but overpriced <laughs> very overpriced it was also in a hotel so right oh my god i remember yeah 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 i went to that once it's so fuzzy because i was drinking so much at that time 
Yeah. Everything is so fuzzy, but it's like, I, I, when I get the context clues of like, oh yeah, it was in a hotel. And then I'm like, man, that was really cool. And it's like every concert that I went to in that chapter of my life, like I went to so many amazing concerts in those few years when I was working, especially when I was working for Live Nation New York. Oh, I'm sure. I was just very very vague recollection, which like, no, you know, not to shame my past self. I mean, whatever, but like, it's too bad that I don't have more like concrete memories of that time. But I remember white gold because I was so, so obsessed with the lesbian couple butcher duo. They're back in the city now. Yeah, I, I love them so much. They have incredible. Yeah, so cool, and we're still really good friends. I love them. Cool. I'm such a, I'm such a fan girl. They, um, what are they doing now? They have their own butcher company. I think that they opened up a small goods store as well. I need to look at their their Instagram. They're very good at posting and, you know, being social media creators. Yeah. They've got a whole whole brand and it's a really, I mean, I am buying what they're selling. Not literally. Yeah. (laughs) Not literally, but figuratively for sure. But But I am like very on board with the whole, and I have been for a really long time. Ever since White Gold opened, I was like, wait, what? They're such cool people and very smart businesswomen. <clears throat> they knew because they were part owners in White Gold and they knew when to pull out because they, you know, when you see the writing on the wall, it's just there. Yeah. Well, that's good for them. <laughs> so then you left that company. To left that. Out. Yeah. And then I went to open Don Angie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which was great. Uh, I developed the initial dessert program there and uh, the bread program as well. You know, I was there with a sledgehammer. It was great. I've opened now many restaurants with that couple. Well, and in general, and it's a it's an experience. I mean, it's either you survive or you don't with that stuff, and it's very hard. <laughs> it's extremely hard because. It's long hours. You think that you're ready for everything. You try to problem solve and like think of any possible thing that can go wrong and try to fix it before it does go wrong. And you're ultimately like, hopefully you can swim, but sometimes you just sink and you'd like deal with the problems as they come. Yeah. Yeah. So much of, so much of that business is unfortunately like reactive problem solving right but it has to be yeah i would say it's about 70 percent reactive 30 percent preventative you know like because you do try your damnedest to prevent as much as possible but at the end of the day it's that one person coming in the door and being like oh this happened and you're like heck you know like (laughs) (laughs) yeah you just have to hope that the stakes aren't too high when it does happen i guess exactly yeah yeah, I mean, I remember when y'all opened Don Angie and getting to go there when I still lived in New York. And it's just the most beautiful gem of a restaurant, just like so perfectly placed in the village. In my mind, I'm like that location, that corner, that like the facade. Like, yeah. Even now with the outdoor seating, the way that y'all designed your outdoor seating is definitely the best that I've seen. I agree. I I think that they did a really good job. Yeah. I mean, the restaurant has seen so much success. So what have been some of the highlights for you personally? Uh, getting a Michelin star for sure. I yeah. think that was an experience that 
no one really counted on. Uh, I certainly never thought that in my lifetime I would get a Michelin star and not to downplay it, but I think that, you know, it's really cool. It's also really daunting to get a Michelin star because you're like, oh, now everybody's going to expect like, you know, I hope that it lives up to, to people's expectations. You know, I think that's the slippery slope when it comes to any of those accolades. I think they're really cool. But at the end of the day, they're thank you so much. Like, let's just put that to the side and, and keep it in mind. But like, we don't measure ourselves by those things. We measure ourselves with how great we do in the moment, you know, like, and I, I have to remind myself of that too. Uh, because I, you know, my bosses or, you know, who my coworkers, I know I have a sous chef right now who I have to talk him down off the ledge every time because I'm like, Denver, it's going to be okay. Like, I promise you, like you, my little sweet angel are <laughs> like, if we don't get a Michelin star this year, it's okay. It is totally okay. And we're going to survive another day. All right. The line is still going to be out the door. It's, you know, people are going to enjoy the food. And that's what matters most. It's not the accolades. It's, you know, it's the people and how they enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When did y'all get the Michelin, Michelin star? We got it in 2021. Okay. So we have the Michelin star and then we retained it last year. Right. And please don't judge me for bringing this up. Maybe you like it. Did you watch the bear? Um, I have not watched the bear yet. I tried to watch about 10 minutes of it and I told Jimmy to turn it off because it was, there was a lot of anxiety going on. It's pretty triggering. Yeah. Well, I just like, I just got off work and I was like presented with more work. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't want it. I I will eventually sit down, watch it because I've, I have heard it's a very good show, but I just... Uh, especially my all of my cooks they say that it's a great show so I will yeah no I mean hey no pressure from me you've got to in my opinion the only way to get through that show is to just kind of watch it in like a few days because that first season is brutal like you were talking about anxiety like the, the thing for me that's so beautiful about that show is the character development and you don't mm-hmm. reap the benefits of that until season two because the characters suck until they've developed. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have heard. I've heard all of these, all of these things. Yeah, but there's, they talk about getting a star and then retaining it. And that was literally the first time I had ever heard that again, this stuff is so mystical and yeah yeah if you're not in the world it doesn't really it it doesn't mean anything or it means something on paper and you're like oh this place has a michelin star right you know you're finding out for the first time so what does that mean to retain it what is what is that what's involved in that well you do you can lose the star so the way the michelin works is it's it is basically uh an organization it is still a tire company of course but Uh, The way that this whole thing was developed was for the Michelin company to like keep people on the road. So like, they're like, oh, these are places you can drive to. And these are the places that we recommend you go to. So that was how it was started for people to buy more cars and buy more tires. Tires. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) 
So uh, now in this day and age, a Michelin star is just an accolade that uh, it's not just an accolade. It is an accolade that um, you can get one, two or three stars, depending on like quality service, ambiance, the, uh, you know, the flavor combinations, the whatever. And it's typically just one person that comes into the restaurant. They are like a secret society. You do not know who it is. And they are to have an ex- like uh, a very anonymous experience there so that they can you know, like figure out how the restaurant holds up. So the person that came in in 2021 or 2020 or whenever had an experience and we got the star in 2021. And then another person came in in 2021 and had an equal or better experience and they deemed that we retained the star. So you kind of got it twice, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you can say you can say we, but you can't say we have two Michelin stars because two Michelin stars means something else. Right, right, right. Yeah. Wow. Did you? It's watch- cool. Yeah. I mean, my and my uh, chefs have been nominated for like James Beard awards. Like it's you know it's serious stuff. They are more in tune, in tune to all that. And maybe when I am an executive chef of my own restaurant, it'll be completely different. But right now, I like see that stuff, but I try not to let it affect, you know, everything else in my life. Because why? Right. Well, and they kind of need you to to fill that role. Because if you're not on the ground with that as your priority, then they got nothing right 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 i am often called the like yin to the yang in the kitchen because i do have a very cool calm demeanor when it comes to you know dealing with situations and dealing with them fast and not yell i i do not believe in like yelling i i don't think it's worth it in the kitchen you know i'd rather like let's let's get get the stuff done like get it done get it in the window get it out and then we can talk after but i'm not gonna just scream because it, that just hurt feelings, create a toxic atmosphere, the list goes on, you know. Absolutely. I think that's way more productive. Yeah. But I've heard that the bear is like very um, accurate in, in how it's how restaurants are portrayed in general. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. My friend who's an executive chef here in Houston said that it's her favorite show and exactly her experience. I'm like, ooh. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I feel like when there have been TV shows that come out like about the music industry, it's kind of cringe. I'm kind of like, oh great. Now everyone's gonna think that they know how this works. Absolutely. 100 percent I mean, I know that that is well absolutely my experience with it because you know, everybody now thinks that they're a chef or that they can like make food. And it's, you know, it's that whole like food network experience that I think, did you grow up watching any of that stuff or was it even interesting to you? Um, I never really was like a committed viewer, but I've watched a bunch of episodes. My sister has always been into it. In my like preteen experience, I remember seeing like, Ina Garden, Rachel Ray, like Emeril Lagasse, Mario Batali, like all of those people and Iron Chef, like all these competition shows were coming out and all of this stuff. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I like watching this stuff because it was 
truncated in such a way that I was like, okay, this is stuff that I can do. Or like, it made you feel like it was accessible. And then I got into cooking from there, but it was, um, it was definitely my first experience with seeing it be like more than a passion for people uh, because cooking was always a passion, but it, ne- it was never like something that I like thought I could do. I always thought I could do do music. And it was the same thing with that too. Like you, you have your, your people that were like, Oh, I've been singing all my life. And then you hear them and you're like, Whoa, um, that's not great. <laughs> same with the same thing with cooking. I've known people that have been cooking in the industry for a long time and they still suck. And I'm just like, sir, like I, I can't promote you because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. That's so interesting because I did want to come back to experiencing the rejection that you had when you applied for master's programs and weren't accepted because it just does not compute to me because you have always been such a talented, hardworking, like you were the best in our class at PBA, right? Like in my mind. That's very kind. It's true. But you, because you were in like top segment of our class you know academically and then as far as the vocal department goes I mean you were always one of the leaders you were always one of the best and I imagine that went with you to college and then you studied music theory as well like you did so much work and then to just get to this ultimate point where people basically told you like yeah, you did all of this work and you ticked all of the boxes, but you don't tick this box. You don't fit what we are specifically looking for, for this particular program or production. Right. And therefore, you don't get it. And right. like, that's like completely out of your control. I still, I don't cringe, but I uh, can acknowledge now that entire experience i know i remember exactly where i was i remember my surroundings i remember reading the rejection email (laughs) and thinking like wow what do i do now it was a crossroads moment and not the britney spears kind it was literally you know something that something that i thought was so controllable and something that was always like a shoe in even in college I was the lead in every opera I was still working really hard and it was kind of an expectation thing too because I set expectations for myself and not necessarily goals it was very much like a rich man syndromes like I have all this stuff already but really I was living in a bubble I was living in the Belmont bubble where yeah the things were always going to be accessible to me but in the real world now not really and it that was the rejection was a hard acceptance for me because i had to accept it within myself like do i want this you know because sure i could have applied again and i had friends that were rejected their first time but then they got in their second year of auditioning and i had to ask myself do i want to go through this again do i want to keep auditioning because this is that life that this life is going to be audition after audition after audition. Will I be happy doing this? Or is it just going to be something that is uncontrollable? Do I want to face all of the rejection that's going to come my way? Because there's going to be more and there's going to be a lot more. And at the end of the day, I decided, no, this isn't what I want anymore. um, And I need to find something else. Yeah. 
it was that 100 to 0 thing. It was like um I needed a break and I didn't know I didn't understand how to transition. I just knew what I knew. So I did the program. I came back. I sang for the Nashville Opera in their choruses. I had like tiny bit parts here and there. I worked in an insurance company. I sang in church choirs that paid really well. So I was busy and I still did music, but it was just like it was an afterthought, to be completely honest. I I loved some of the productions. I didn't care about some of the productions. I was going by rote. And so when I moved to New York, it was one of those like out of sight, out of mind things again. Like when I moved to Nashville, it was uh, let me start over and let me try something new. And so it took me a while to like even get the itch to start singing again. Yeah, I think that's really understandable. So now you you're in the gay men's chorus. Yeah. So, and you joined that in 2021 or 2020? No, I joined it last year, uh, September of last year. And yeah, I have to say it is really fulfilling in many ways. I forgot how much fun singing can be and like the community as well. It's interesting. I joined it because I was always complaining to jimmy my boyfriend that i have no friends i have no gay friends especially i've always had a very easy time making friends with ladies uh lesbians especially and (laughs) and um straight men i get along great with those groups of people i am very good at it i i think it's because There's no expectation. Like we don't expect or desire anything from each other other than great company. So having that experience with them, I knew that usually with gay men, it's there's always an expectation. There's like, am I hot or not? Or am I like in your like group of group of friends? Do I make the same like stupid jokes? There's always kind of a what I associated with as like a daftness or like some kind of like we have to talk about Britney Spears or Beyonce for us to even like relate. And I'm just not that type of person. Like they don't define, I enjoy them, but they don't define me. And I think for the most part, this is a huge generalization, but the people that I was surrounding myself with before the gay men's chorus was all were always that vapid and it was um it was disheartening because I of course want gay friends I need people that like see me on my level that we can relate on more than just what we're listening to or you know what tv shows we're watching like that can be a jumping off point but like if if I don't have a gut feeling that we're going to be friends then I'm not going to really bother that much and we're going to stay acquaintances yeah, it is really great that I have found more friends in in the community that I, you know, ascribe to. Yeah, that's so interesting that that's where you were able to find it, because and I don't know if this is your experience, too, but I have a tough time connecting with people on a deeper level or I'm just selective, you know, like I can have like surface level acquaintances I can be friendly, of course, and 
great, but like, I don't have too many people in my life that are really close to me. And it is really hard for me to establish any kind of rapport with someone. And then it wasn't until I did a play, like the first play that I did after I got sober, it's we do whatever it's a long story but <laughs> like, <laughs> I, did a play. I started working on this play when I was like probably like five months so four or five months sober and totally caught me off guard how helpful it was in establishing a stronger or deeper connection to the people in my community because we were collaborating Mm. And the pressure wasn't on me to perform or deliver something for them or to, you know, be funny or to whatever, like figure out how to have a conversation, which was hard for me at the time. It was (laughs) a team project. Yeah. That's what I really, what I really needed. Yeah. I like, I, I kind of liken it to doing a group project in school. Like you have to work with these people. And so you have no choice but to make a deeper connection, right? I consider myself very selective and who I like let in. For instance, at work, like there are some people that I just, I know off the back that we're, are, we should be like besties, but I put up a wall because it's work. It's, I have to be professional. I'm one of the leaders in the restaurant and, you know, I, I'm very private about my my life. I'm silly, I'm fun, but if you ask me about my personal life, like I'm either vague or I won't answer. Yeah. In that situation, I think it's for the best. And I think that it it has also kind of not marred, but definitely colored my personal relationships too, because I am standoffish. You know, I put up a wall until I know that there is like a, a line of trust or like some kind of tether that can be tied to you. Otherwise, I'm just wasting my time. I think I do the same thing. That's why online dating just does not work for me. <laughs> it's tough. It's really tough. I don't even know how you do it without like alcohol as like a vehicle because where else do you meet people other than bars? Yeah. And also I'm just, I'm just more selective. Like you said, like I just, it's not that I don't have, I don't have fulfilling relationships with people you know like I'm connecting with people that are really different from me and then people that I have a lot in common with pretty regularly through like recovery or through drag and you know I just their surface level yeah exactly and and that doesn't mean that they're not rewarding relationships it's just you know that's where like kind of the dynamic and it's great can you share anything about your creative process or like what inspires you? And this can come from purely your culinary endeavors or musically or both. I love going out to eat. I think it's like one of my all time favorite things, especially in a city like New York, because you have so many options. You can taste any cuisine you want. If I want a Nigerian, I know where to go. If you want Sudanese or Taiwanese or like um, uh, Bengali or like I, I, I can list probably every country in the globe and I'm sure that there is like a pocket or something here in New York. So like tasting, trying everything, you know, social media is actually really helpful 
also with just looking at recipes, like finding stuff that, you know, I normally wouldn't put together, being inspired in such a way that I'm like, oh my God, I remember this from my childhood. I wonder if I can update it and like make it something interesting or something better. Yeah. So those types of things I I think about. Usually I'm always trying to recreate something from my childhood and just like amp it up a little bit. And I think the best probably uh, example of that is the Choco Taco that I made for dinner table. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. I remember so I- Yeah, so I just took something that I remember being like an okay snack from my childhood. But whenever I got one, I was super excited about it until I opened it up. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of all mushed up. (laughs) But I'm still gonna like throw it down my gullet. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, it's like getting one of those like Sonic the Hedgehog (laughs) ice pops from the The like the gumballs like right here. You're still going to eat it and it, the gum is going to taste like disgusting, but you're still going to eat it for like yeah. five minutes. So yeah, I just updated it, made it nicer. Uh, I did the same thing. I loved having toaster strudels as well. And for dinner table, I created like a classier version of a toaster strudel, which was very tasty. I remember that too. Yeah. Um, I've always had like a fascination with ice creams and sorbets. I think that all of those things are so delicious. You can do so much with just like cream, sugar, salt, and flavor. Or not. Like you can eliminate cream. You can like put in all these other ingredients to make it something else. Especially with all the nut milks and all the all these other weird ass milks that are coming out. There's now like pea milk. Have you heard of this? No. Yeah, it's called Ripple, but it's made from sweet peas. Oh, you know what? I have. I know you've seen it, but yeah, in very tiny print, they're like, it's from Sweet Peas, but we didn't want to call it pea milk. Yeah. Instead, they call it Ripple and it looks like nipple. Uh, Exactly. Perfect. Great job. Great marketing. (laughs) I didn't realize that was pea milk. No, that sounds bizarre. I have tried tried the banana milk, which is delicious. What the heck? I have not heard of banana milk. Is it literally just like blending an entire banana with water? I don't know. I don't know. That's how all these things are made. Like oat milk is just oats and water. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's very good. I think it's probably got, I think it's probably got like almond milk in it too or something. I could be wrong. I'm not sure. I I mean, now I'm going to buy it. Yeah. I mean, it's worth purchasing. It's good. So, yeah, I think that's my, I love, uh, collecting um all of my cookbooks uh anytime somebody's like going away somewhere and they're like oh what should I bring you I always say a cookbook why not like I love getting cookbooks and um anytime Jimmy's traveled on his own he always picks me up one oh cool mm-hmm. is there anyone in particular that inspires you or that you admire in the field the people that I grew up with that we were just talking about, like Ina Garden, right now, there is a young, gay, Jewish, I think his heritage is like Hungarian or something, but his restaurant is really, really, really great. It is some of the best food I've had in a long time. And he's doing well. He has a restaurant in Flatbush. 
And it's like Hungarian Jewish cuisine on Flatbush, which is a, typically like a very Jamaican Haitian community. <laughs> and it's just like this random white guy that's like, hey, come on in. And it's it's wonderful. Most of the younger cooks on uh, like the New York Times website or uh, they have that YouTube channel as well. Claire Saffitz is one of them. Andy Barragani is another. I just think that we're in a period now where the younger cooks finally have a say in like what we put on tables and we don't have people like Mario Batali or Emeril Lagasse, not so much anymore, saying like, this is what food is now. Now we have this younger generation of saying, people saying, you know, oh, this is what we think it could be. You know, whether that's molecular gastronomy or just like really good food. Like, I think both are welcome to the table personally molecular gastronomy like sometimes it's really great but i'm not gonna pay i'm not gonna pay like 400 dollars to eat a cloud um so <clears throat> like just <laughs> in theory sounds really cool but then when you do it you're like i'm pissed like <laughs> i need a whopper after this or something yeah i have a whole it's a it's an adventure in and of itself and then i feel like i have to recover and then i'm like i don't even know what that was and yeah. Right. Like if you have an existential crisis with the food that you're eating, I it's hard for me to come to terms with food being anything other than catharsis, healing, comfort. Like if you don't fit these three, then I don't think you're doing food right in my eyes. Like yeah. maybe food means something else for somebody else. But if the thing that we put in our body isn't helping us in some way, then maybe rethink it. Yeah. Like in general, like I, I consider that as an umbrella, even McDonald's. Like I think everything is great in moderation. Like I'm not one to like shy from a Big Mac. I think it's delicious, but like, I'm not going to eat a Big Mac every day of my life. You know what I mean? Like, I do believe in treats. I do believe in like treating yourself every once in a while to a great meal, whether that's, you know, if that means a, a Big Mac for you or a $400 cloud, like, great. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes those, like in my experience, sometimes I feel like I am paying for the experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, there's a version, did we ever do an omakase together? Or are you familiar? Oh, I love omakase. It's one of my favorite things, but not everybody likes that stuff, you know, like, but it's the experience that puts you into it. It's the like, total dedication of the chef in front of you that's cutting things and placing things and making things to order in front of your face. That makes the experience worth it to me. And they're typically pretty pricey. That type of eating and cuisine, I think, is like, it's awe-inspiring, and it's also makes me have a deeper appreciation for whatever product they're putting in front of me. Yeah, I agree. I love an omakase experience because I feel like it's it requires a meticulousness that is so foreign to me and so impressive, and also not just in the assembly and delivery, but also in purchasing, right? Like... Yeah, I mean, it's probably the most sustainable uh, form of restaurant cuisine, if I'm being completely honest, because, you know, they're purchasing rice and fish. That's their staple, right? So they're going to use everything from that. And then typically they take the fish bones and then they make a stock out of it and they use that in something else. Like it's, it is completely sustainable and recyclable, which I think 
in theory makes the most sense like if you're not composting if you're not like making the most out of everything you're just creating more waste and like that's the last thing that we need in this world right we've got to go on an omakase experience together. literally anytime i i have my favorites here what are they have you been to shuko i have i have that been. i think is probably my favorite right now there are a couple though that uh, really surprised me uh, with just their dedication and like attention to detail. What is that? Is that your favorite thing to eat? It's one of them. Um, I typically go for any kind of rustic cuisine. I'm not really a like a fancy going out guy. I like it. I think it's like a time and a place and like for a birthday or something like for my 30th birthday, I went to the Carlisle hotel because I thought it was, I thought it was cool. You know, it's a, it's a New York institution. So I was like, you know what? Only once it's so expensive, but you know, I got Solmanier. I got the whole like French service. I thought it was very nice. Where's Bimmelman's bar? There. Oh, okay. Is that yeah, yeah? It's it's an offshoot of the Carlisle. That's where Woody Allen like plays Clarence. Right. Yeah, yeah. The guy who wrote Madeline. It's like his murals. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my favorites, like I that I think that's why I kind of venture towards Italian cuisine and like Southern French cuisine because I think it in my head it makes the most sense like i'm like oh this makes sense to me because it's comforting it like makes it makes me feel like i can taste the love i uh a while ago i want to say like right when i moved i really wanted to go to 11 madison park which at the time had like very fancy food well it still does but it was um it wasn't vegan at the time now it's vegan um but I remember paying a boatload of money for something that tasted like fear. Like I could taste no love. I just tasted technique. Like it was, it was okay. Like, and I remember the bill coming and being like, wow, that was a lot of money for something that I didn't feel gypped on, but I knew that I would never go back. Mm-hmm. And if I know that I'm not going to go back somewhere, then I don't think it was worth it. And that's what I tell everybody. I'm like, if if you feel like you will go back to that restaurant, it was a good one. But if you're never going to go back, then what's the point? You know, I think that that's kind of the same way I feel about Mexican food, too, which growing up in Texas, like it's so comforting and relaxing and also exciting at the same time, not because of the portions, but just because of. I know the food was made with love. I know that everybody making this food had a good time making it. And it matters to me because I feel like maybe this is psychosomatic, but I feel like I can taste it. Yeah. Oh, I totally, I totally relate to that. I think that I think that Mexican food and uh, certain Italian foods just taste, they taste like a hug. (laughs) Yeah. I, I like those types of like mom and pop, uh, what seemed to be mom and pop or like uh, the Italian word is abastanza. So when there's like an abundance of food and it's like, you can tell that people have like really made, it wasn't just like that. Here's your portion. Thank you. Goodbye. Here's the check. Um, but there are places like that right in the city that there's, there's a restaurant over by me. That's like 
very French service. Like they they have the burrata for you. They they will cut the burrata for you, and then they will serve the burrata onto your plate. And here is your allocated bread. And if you want more bread, that's more money. And like it, it's like, uh, why is this an exchange? Like I just like I wanted the food. Give me the food. Yeah. Okay, I experienced it, and it was very stuffy, and not into it anymore. Yeah, I think that's why, because I always have kind of said, like, I don't like French food. And I don't think that's accurate, but I do not like typically, generally speaking, I don't love the French dining experience. I think because when you hear the word French, like, oh, this is a French restaurant, you're thinking, like, uh, do I have to wear pants? Like, or like, uh, is there like, <laughs> yes. like, what does this mean in the grand scheme of things? Does it mean that all the waiters going to be wearing tuxes? Like, is this like going to be one of those like really gross? Uh, fill in the blank so uh but i have learned that if you just do your research like most of the french cuisine especially in new york is very approachable and they don't give a shit there are those places like i i went to paris last year and ate at this really great unstuffy place where they all they wanted to do was serve you the great food and the great wine and they were just like thank you for practicing your english with me or whatever and i practice my french with them or whatever they're out there i promise i'll take you to some i think it's probably now that i've actually said that out loud i think that it's gotta be my like internalized like what's the word fear just prejudice i mean oh yeah yeah growing up in america right like we're like oh no like french is stuffy (laughs) right i mean that is the word that literally comes to mind whenever i'm i hear somebody saying like oh this is french cuisine and i'm like oh is it stuffy are these like hoity-toity people or like what am i expecting yeah is is it am i mistaken to think that french cuisine is kind of isn't it kind of like the foundation of a lot of so like there in the kitchen there's uh this thing that this really old man uh escoffier created and it's called the brigade system so the brigade which i'm sure you probably learned from the bear is everybody or not is like uh, i'm not the most attentive (laughs) no 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 but there's there's a term like this is very french but there's a term for everything in the kitchen so like you're if you're a commis that means that you are like lower level prep cook you know whatever uh if you're a chef de partie that means that you have like an assigned station like this is where i am and then then there's like saucier there's the poissonnier there's you know there's a uh, garde manger there's uh patisserie there's uh, so many places that in the kitchen that people work so they're you like yeah, I'm in charge of the fish. I am in charge of making the sauces and like sauteing. I am in charge of like all of this stuff. And I'm in charge of like cold apps. I'm in charge of the pastry program. And most kitchens still like, especially the the more expensive kitchens work like that. Like you work your station and that's it. The more mom and pop places slash, you know, our kitchen, for example, like we do like half and half with the brigade system. So we have the uh, line cooks is what we call them. Prep cooks or the prep cooks. And I have three sous chefs now. I have and I'm the chef de cuisine. So I'm in charge of everything. And then my bosses are just the owners. But as far as like the foundation of the food itself, I think that the French were the first ones to just write it down. 
and I'm dead serious and like give things names like the way we cut things the way we you know like if I said okay I need this brunoise like anybody that went to school knows what a brunoise is or I need this julienne anybody that went to school slash watch the food network knows what a julienne is you know like it's one of those words that you're just like I know what that looks like so they can do that and then like they have their own words for like slice and dice and like different sizes of slicing and dicing like it's all like chiffonade like those are all french terms because they those were the first people that were like this is what we're going to call this interesting thank you for sharing that i don't know if you realized that you were going to be teaching written culinary welcome to my master class yeah I mean, something you might want to consider. <laughs> I've, I've, I have thought about teaching. It's been in, in the back of my mind for sure. That's interesting that you mentioned that it's probably the first time that they like wrote it down and assigned words to everything because I love pasta grannies. I love pasta grannies. They're adorable. I love them. I love them and I love the concept. I love the approach. Like it's so kind and like warm and they're so sweet. Celebrating these older people in Italy. It's beautiful and like honoring their legacy and something that they've been doing for eons. (laughs) And, but it's like, I try to follow along to like what they're describing in the video. Oh God. I try to replicate it. And it's, I mean, you can imagine. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're tough because they've been doing it for so long. And uh, like the Italians don't really measure that much. Like their measurements are literally like, uh, they'll say like, eh, just a little bit. It's fine. Just like put a little bit, uh, no, put a little bit more. Like, no, more. And then like, you're like, what is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, yeah, it's just, it was just absolute chaos. Like trying to like, I just ended up getting so much like flour and egg and water on my laptop. Yeah, I think you're better off with probably like looking, looking at what they're doing and then like looking up the recipe for that shape that they're making. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good advice. (laughs) (laughs) But from an inspirational standpoint. 100%. They're adorable. Yeah, I'm a big fan. So thinking back on when you were facing that rejection from the opera world in Austria and in the US and you had to change the path you were on and the trajectory of your future and what kind of advice or wisdom do you think would have been helpful to you at that point in your life? I think if from an outsider's perspective if somebody told me to somebody that I valued their opinion on, I should say, um, told me to enjoy the journey and, you know, relax, things will work out, you know, not from like a foretelling point of view, but just a, just like a, a calming voice to know that 
it's not do or die. This isn't like, you know, December 21st, 2012. It's not the end of the world. It's not going to be a shut off. You're not, your life isn't ending in the way that you think it is. So if I were to be told that, I feel like I would have had a better transition into the place where I am. There is a part of me that's like, no, I wouldn't be where I am if I heard that. But, you know, I I would have liked that comforting hug from a person just saying, like, it's all going to work out. It will. You know, you're going to survive another day and you'll figure it out. Yeah. And there's so much more to you than this one pursuit that you focused on for so long. Yeah. I mean, and it's always hindsight, right? So I didn't know that it was a crossroads. I thought it was a roadblock. I thought it was literally no way forward. Like, what do we do? And, you know, I couldn't backtrack. So I was just like stuck at the stop sign, not knowing like where, when, how to move forward. And I... You know, it wasn't until like I saw that there were other opportunities and other things to do that were are it's going to be okay. What do you think it was that illuminated those options for you? You know, I love that visual you just said of, you know, you thought it was a dead end, but it was a crossroads, right? So what was it that illuminated the alternative path forward? I don't even know if it was a one thing. It was more like it was a uh, like a domino effect of multiple things. It was doing the program in Austria. It was feeling the $10 in my pocket, knowing that I couldn't pay rent and I had to live with the, these people, uh, my boyfriend and the 50 year old man at the time. And I was just like, what? how do I move forward? So I I had to search for a job for myself. I had to pick myself up. I had to keep singing because that was what I knew how. And then I discovered another part of me that liked, found another passion. So it was in my openness and it was in my rock bottom seems dreary. It wasn't a rock bottom, but it was, it was definitely one of those places where I felt like I could not move forward. And the only way I knew how was to take the baby steps to find more inspiration. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was like you experienced a sense of hopelessness and maintaining a sense of openness is what actually ultimately gave you room for hope. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think it definitely comes into my management style too, because if I was the yelling type, if I was the, you know, the, the person that would shut people out, shut them down, not listen, not take things with a grain of salt, not do all this stuff. I feel like that would be the person from high school that I thought I was instead of the person that, you know, I grew up to be. And since I did go with that trauma, I have the listening shoulder I have the you know come to me with problems come to me with you know let's find a solution that works for you and uh, I think like everything from my past kind of led me to be you know it sounds trite but it led me to be this person that I I am now as far as like I had to go through these things in order to know what it's like 
to not allow somebody else to fall down the rabbit hole that I was, you know, to get them to get them to ask those questions earlier on so that they not just make the mistakes, but learn from the mistakes. Because we're going uh, like everybody is like destined to make the mistakes, but hopefully like they learn them faster than I, I did, you know, like, or whatever they, people go on through their own paths, however they go. But I think as far as the legacies that I would want to be remembered as, I want to be the person that asked, asked the hard questions and came and delivered the right rulings as best as possible. Mm-hmm. Making mistakes, we learn from them whether we try to or not. Yeah. Every every experience that we have contributes to who we are, right? So how that manifests is kind of up to us. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Thanks, sharing. Gracie. How do you feel? Good. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it when you were talking about your work. You're this respectfully approachable person. You are approachable because you're not yell- you're not going to yell, but you have a sense like this intimidation factor because of your talent and your skills and you know the more reserved demeanor. And I feel like it's such a, it's just such an admirable way of being a leader, you know, Thanks, Gracie. Yeah. I love it. 